0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been sponsored by Legacy Judaica in honor of their upcoming auction uh, next week. May 8th, next Sunday, it's at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. May 8th is, of course, uh, VE Day in the United States, so it's Yante Um And you want to put in your bids now. It's a very prestigious auction house with great stuff. I'm actually considering bidding on a few of them uh, myself. There's a lot of artifacts there that have a lot of historical significance and you'll also just have fun uh, like I did perusing the catalog um, so check out legacy Judaica on bidspirit and of course I'll post uh, the links in the description in the text of the of the podcast and uh, and on Jewish history sound by social media there's it, it, it's it's a it's a, it's a great it's a great auction there's lots of first prints and rare sfarim a fascinating collection an overwhelming wealth of history represented over centuries and all these first prints of different books from the 16th and 17th centuries. There were a few things that caught my eye from later on. There's the interesting story of the Sefer HaYovel in honor of Rav Shimon Shkup, in 1937, they, they put out in order to fundraise for the yeshiva in Grudna, they put out a um, a book in his honor, which is quite rare, uh, you know, for that to happen in in the yeshiva world at the time. Ramir Shapiro they did that also, uh, but it wasn't that common. So they did it for Shim and Shkup. There's the hat, original Hatvuna, which um, I discussed in the uh, Davi and Safir and I discussed in the Reb Leib Malin article a few months ago in. In the Mishpacha magazine. Um, so there, there is a Hatvuna, which Rablaib Malin put out, uh, published uh, when he arrived in the United States so for Torah and Musser. So there's an original printing of that. There's an interesting book I saw there about the finding, searching for the 10 lost tribes. There's another book, Karam Yisrael, about the genealogy of the Rizian and Chernobyl Hasidic dynasties, an original copy, a wealth of information there. There's an original sefer of the Radzina Rebbe, the Bal HaTcheles, Reb Gershon Henach his uh, sefer Aina Tcheles, Psil Tcheles, about uh, discovering the uh, Tcheles, what he thought was the cuttlefish today. It's presumed to be the Murek snail. But um, again, that brought the, uh, the the topic to the to the Jewish scene. I also noticed there's a second edition of the Nefesh Achayim of Reb Chaim V'Lazhener, uh, up for auction, also there on Legacy Judaica. So that was the second edition uh, printed in 1837. And the second printing of Nefesh HaChayim was the first one to have the Pirkei Benayim, those elusive um, chapters that are in between the third and fourth sections of the work, which I discussed in the Nefesh episode. And and were, these these chapters were missing from the first printing. And the question is, what is those chapters all about? Uh, so that's, you know, this is, of course, also has historic value. I saw a pamphlet there about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, an original printing of the Mima Makim uh, sefer of Refaim Ashri of the Kovna Ghetto, so there's all kinds of Holocaust-related uh, stuff. And I also noticed that there's the Tehillim, original Tehillim of the Ribnitzarebbe, so that's by far the most important item on auction. If you own this to Hillam, then you never even need to recite to anymore, because just owning it suffices. The only thing that might rival it is that Reb Chaim Kanievsky's sitter is also going up for auction, though it isn't clear which family member of his will be making the profits on this one. There's also Reb or Ful Hirsch's Chuvas Harashba. His personal copy of Chuvas Harashba is on auction, which was given to him by his father as a gift, and it's inscribed uh, to him from his father, which is fascinating. There are there some sfarim that were owned by the Beis Salevi, such as his copy of Rabbi with his own personal stamp. There's a letter from Rabbi Archik Bakht, a uh, great uh, Rav and Rosh Hashiva in many, many different towns. In, in uh, Suvalk, he was in in shavel he was where he was killed he was also in Lamja he was in Tsariton which is later stalingrad he was he was in a rabbi in many towns he was a Rosh Hashiva as well and a uh, very great Balmusser, a uh, great rabbi a uh, tremendous person a lot to say about him as well um either way, so there's all kinds of letters from rabbinic personalities, Sadiqim and Hasidic rabbis. Many of these letters include historic information. There's letters from Yitzhak Khan Inspector of Chaim And interesting, I saw a letter there from the Rebbe Rabbi Doiv of Bells regarding electing a religious representative to the Austrian Parliament in 1907. And so on and so forth. I could go on and on for another 20 minutes. I had a great time. I spent uh, at least an hour, maybe two hours or so going through it twice. I had such a fun time. So, I highly recommend that the listeners of Jewish History Soundbites go through the catalog of Legacy Judaica auction as well. And hopefully, you'll find something exciting to buy, purchase for yourselves or your friends or any other history nerds that you know. I also want to note in sorrow the passing on Friday of Rabnata Greenblatt. I hope that we get to have a full length tribute to him in a future episode. Um, if you have any great stories about him, you can share, then send me. If you are interested in sponsoring, then that's even more important to send me and be in touch with me, Yehuda at yehudigabra.com because I think he's such a historic personality with so, so much long and rich life and experiences and people who he knew that it would be very nice to dedicate an episode to Ribnata Greenblatt, a great and special man. who was a worldwide expert in Gittin and many other areas of al world-class paisik and Talmud Chacham, and most of all, he was from a different world. Um, he seems to have been everywhere in his youth. He was 96 years old at the time of his passing, so he was a real link to a, by, a bygone world. So a treasure trove of history may his memory be a blessing, and like I said, we hope to have a full tribute episode to him in the near future. So the topic for today is the strange story of the get of... Kleve, Cleves, the get, the city of Cleves in Germany, different pronunciations in, in Yiddish and German, how to pronounce the name of this town. Um, and this get a story, rocked the rabbinic world at the time in 1766, 1767, 1768, a little over two-year period. It's actually quite appropriate, uh, just now the passing of Rab'natha Greenblatt was the ultimate worldwide respected authority on Gittin. And here we're talking about the validity of this GED and how it became this big rabbinic dispute. They could have used uh, uh, Rab'natha Greenblatt to uh, to paskin on that GED also. And in fact, one of the few times I was privileged to meet Rabhnata was I attended a, a Shear of his when I when he v- was visiting Israel about 12 years ago, and his grandson told me that whenever Abnata the Greenblatt visited Israel, the rabbanut in Tel Aviv, in Yerushalayim, would meet with him and pose all of their accumulated, complicated Gittin questions to him. So he had that universal authority. Either way, so this Cleva get story, a lot's been written about it and spoken about. In fact, Rabbi Pini Dunner recently wrote quite extensively on the topic, a whole three-part uh, chapters on his blog, and much has been written about it by many others over the years who are much more competent than me. So I'm going to relate the story, but I want to, instead of focusing specifically on this story, I would like to shift the focus to the broader context to contextualize the story as it were. So first I'm going to go through the basic facts of what happened, and then afterwards we'll explore perhaps in a broader perspective of the Jewish world at the time of this rather strange story of the Get of Cleves. There's this uh, young man uh, named Isaac Nieberg, who lived in the German town of Mannheim, which is south of Frankfurt, and he went ahead and married Lea Gunsheisen from the German town of Bonn, uh, which is north of Frankfurt, in, uh, in August of 1766, in the groom's hometown of Mannheim. This Isaac fellow exhibited some really strange behavior both during the engagement and especially immediately following the marriage a couple of days later during the Shabbos Sheva Brachah ceremony when he all of a sudden disappeared and taking a significant sum of money with him on Shabbos morning. Um, so it was very odd behavior. And they later found him in an agitated state and uh, convinced him to come back. Now I'm deliberately skipping... Many of the details of the story, I'm going to brush over many of the details of the technicalities of the whole story of the individuals involved because I feel it's less important for this context. You can look up uh, Rabbi Penny Dunner or any of the other people who wrote up on it. There's a Wikipedia page devoted to it in English and Hebrew. I want to get to, I want to get to um, you know to speak a little bit more about the broader. There are several ways of approaching this story. One way would be the narrative of the young couple. Uh, you know, it's again a human story. At the end of the day, it's a tragedy of this young couple and their marriage uh, nipped in the bud. Uh, you know, when they had this whole life ahead of them, and the tragedy of the two families who were disputing each other. That's one way to view this story. The uh, the second way to view the story is a narrative of a rabbinic dispute, which unfortunately is quite common, and there's many rabbinic disputes, and we can see the disputes among rabbis as, as the story here. A third way to view the story is is with the halachic intricacies of marriage and divorce law, of insanity, the classification of someone whose their mental state and insanity in Jewish law, the jurisdiction of a rabbinical court in Jewish law, and there would be, that would be really a halachic discussion, which of course is beyond the purview of this podcast and my capabilities as well. So that's why, like I said, I'm going to go a fourth way, which is to delve into the broader context of when and where this happened um, after we finish the, the basic idea of, of the story itself. So, like I said, the, the chassin here, this Isaac, is um, exhibiting all this strange behavior. The wedding party travels to the bride's town, to Bonn, and um, which is a you know a famous famous town in general and famous Jewish town. I think Bonn was the birthplace. I didn't look the sub If I recall correctly, it's the birthplace of uh, Ludwig von Beethoven, and of course, it was more famously in recent times the capital of West Germany after the division of Germany after World War II. Um, it also in the next century, in the 19th century, it was the birthplace of a very famous Jewish personality, Moses Hess, who was a philosopher, an early communist thinker, a colleague of Marx and Engels, and later on a proto-Zionist, early uh, um, you know ideas of, of Jewish nationalism and Zionism. Um, Bonn also had a prestigious has a prestigious university, and during the 1800s, Reb or Rafael Hirsch and the opposite end of the religious spectrum, Abraham Geiger, uh, studied at the university there at the same time, and even were acquaintances there for a time. Sobot has a rich Jewish history from all sides of the uh, Jewish spectrum. Either way, so that's where this 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 this, uh, this uh, bride's family was from. And the agitated young man decided a couple of days later, after they arrived in the city, that his life was in danger, and he never explained why but he decided that he must divorce his wife and escape to London. Um, I guess he must have been really in danger if he was willing to go to England. And a relative of the bride, a fellow by the name of Reb Shimon Copenhagen, had, had attended the wedding and was with the wedding family group uh, the entire time and 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 he actually met with the chassin and since he was a respected rabbinical personality and was an eyewitness to the entire saga from beginning to end, his testimony would prove crucial to the historical narrative. He eventually wrote a pamphlet about it describing his eyewitness of the events um eventually excuse me eventually he uh this young man uh the young man demanded a divorce eventually the bride's family. Uh, agreed to divorce and a financial settlement, and that financial settlement would subsequently prove to be the the main issue. As the young man's parents, this Isaac's parents, Eliezer and, and uh, I forgot his wife's name, were not satisfied with this financial arrangement, and that instigated, basically instigated the entire dispute. So, as with most stories, you know, it always boils down to money at the end of the day. Isaac did not want to do the divorce. They couldn't do it in in Bonn. There wasn't a proper Besden, But in nearby Düsseldorf, there was. But Isaac did not want to do it there. Um, He was concerned that word would get back to his parents. And he wanted to keep them in the dark. He didn't want them to hear about it. So they decided to travel further north. Um, They agreed to travel with him further north. And in the direction of England, in the general direction on the road. They were kind of like accompanying him on his way, which was his final destination. And there's a small town of Cleve's... uh, on the Dutch border, um, and that's where there was a Besden, and that's where they were going to have the divorce ceremony. This town of Cleveland, Germany, on the Dutch border, border, had a Jewish community for centuries. It was a rather small Jewish community, a couple of hundred Jews, but it had a central shul, and a bezden and a you know community, a full communal stru- infrastructure. Its shul was destroyed during Kristallnacht in 1938. In fact, the entire town, pretty much the entire town, was leveled by British bombers during World War II, interestingly enough. Um, but the rabbinical court of the town was headed by Rabbi Yisrael Lifshitz, who was the rabbi, and his grandson and namesake was also Rabbi Yisrael Lifshitz. He was the author of the Teferis Stroll on Mishnayos and the rabbi of Danzig in the 19th century and a fascinating figure in his own right. So this is the prestigious Lifshitz rabbinical family, so we stroll Lifshitz is the rabbi there, and he officiates over the get-divorce ceremony following his hearing the entire story from the parties involved, as well as interviewing the groom to ensure that he was of sound mind and mental state to go through with the ceremony. This young man, Isaac, then departs for London and Leah's family returns to Bonn, and that should have been the end of the story. But... Isaac's parents find out about it, and they turn to their local rabbi in Mannheim, Reb uh, Hess, uh, to annul the divorce. They come with this request to him to annul the divorce and consider them still a married couple since the, his parents insisted that their son Isaac was insane and therefore incapable of going through the divorce process. He was not of a competent mental state to be able to, to, uh, to go through the, with the procedure. Um, so this rabbi in turn turns towards the prestigious Frankfurt rabbinical court headed by the respected Ravram Abishfeld, formerly the rabbi of Lisa in Poland. who was the author of the Sefer Birka Savram and um, other Frankfurt rabbis involved. There was a fellow named Rav Nassim Mas who seemed to have been the main one involved behind the scene. And uh, the Frankfurt Besden decided without being privy to all the details of the story and without consulting even with Rabisro Lifshitz who had officiated over the get and without speaking to all the family members, they subsequently did interview the bride's family at a later date, but they go ahead and decide that the get was invalid, that Leah remained a married woman and therefore forbidden to remarry. And then everything explodes. Um, you know, different rabbis start weighing in. Um, they get the rabbi of London at the time, who, have, who had formerly been in Frankfurt, actually, Reb David Tevelashif, um, to weigh in on the case after he spoke to Isaac, who had turned up in London. And he says there's no problem with the get. It was it's a val- He validated the get. Reb Shol Lovenstam of Amsterdam validated the get. And then later on, the senior a uh, German rabbi at the time, Rabbi Einkev Emden, the Yaivitz. um He validates the get and speaks pretty strongly publicly about it, about how the Frankfurt uh, Besden is being quite obstinate in their refusal to accept uh, the fact that the get is valid. Then the Shagasari, Rabbi Leib Ginsberg, um, and a host of, I'm not going to even go through the entire list, it's a long, long list, a host of other rabbis across Germany and really, all over Europe, Reb Shleim um, of Chelm in Poland, the Merkeves and, HaMishnah, and many others, um, they joined those who said the get is fine, it's kosher and valid, and the the uh, the Chassin um, was of sound mind and sane when he delivered the get, and they actually expressed their surprise and disappointment with the behavior of the Frankfurt rabbis uh, in not accepting their uh, opinion, a widespread uh, opinion. So what had begun as a question of the validity of a get and the role of insanity in Jewish law had by now expanded to a few other crucial areas. Uh, number one, the jurisdiction over a halachic case or dispute by one bezdin does that preclude other rabbis from gathering testimony and offering their opinion? The Frankfurt bezdin says, this is our domain. We are the ones who are deciding on this case, and no one else can weigh in on the case whatsoever. It's our case. Uh, That was one issue, because that became a contentious issue. Is that really true? Another question that arose was, can the majority of rabbis across Europe impose their majority view and the minority opinion of the Frankfurt rabbis? Another question that arose was: Is a rabbinical court required to share their reasoning at the behest of other rabbis? Because the Frankfurt court did not, and they said, "We don't have to. We don't have to disclose our reasons." Um, we uh, sat in a Besdin, and you know, our opinion needs to be accepted. And of course, the issue uh, of communal and rabbinical honor and respect uh, became a big issue. You know, is the it becomes the burning of letters by different rabbis involved and the banning Rabbi, the frankfurt business, bans rabbis who supported uh, the get from becoming uh, rabbis in frankfurt and underlying all of this is the struggle to impose rabbinical leadership and control in the modern era essentially that's the real story of the Kleve get and that's its everlasting legacy because it is an issue that has still not been resolved and by many in the establishment haven't even come to terms with it yet, uh, either, of, of, of the modern era and how the kahal and, and the uh, rabbinical power has been lessened without the backing of the government in, in modern times. That becomes a major issue. Um, eventually, the main rabbi who weighs in on the issue is Rabbi Heskel Landau, the knight Bihuda of, of Prague, and he takes a leading role in the dispute. Uh, At first, he tried to facilitate a compromise between Rabbi Yisrael Lifshitz and the Frankfurt uh, rabbinate, as he had attempted to do several years earlier in the Rabbi Yaakov, Emdin, Rebenus, and Ibershitz dispute. He was sort of the Henry Clay of the Jewish world at the time, always trying to find compromise. Um, And um, I guess we could say he was as successful as Henry Clay as well, because The proposal did not generate much excitement with the Frankfurt rabbinate, who continued to be quite entrenched in their position, despite their growing isolation in the rabbinical world. Rabbi Haskelenda goes ahead and publicly proclaims in Prague um, that the get is valid. Leah is allowed to remarry, and he magnanimously offers to officiate at her wedding himself. And then he launches an all-out assault and attack on the Frankfurt rabbinate for their untenable position, in his opinion. And they responded by publicly burning his letter and making an official rule that banned him and all of his his descendants from Frankfurt for eternity. Um, and, then, and they also, they said that anyone who supported the get cannot be hired as a rabbi. Frankfurt, I discussed in the episode on of Pinchas Harovitz the hafla, that that's how he was hired because he was one of the only rabbis in Europe who did not uh, get involved in this. This dispute lasts about two years until the unexpected passing of Rabbi Avraham Abish of Lisa, the rabbi of Frankfurt, uh, who, which you know, his passing took the wind out of the sails of the Frankfurt uh, rabbinical court. Um, there are some different unverified versions of what happened to the couple themselves, including a published version a full century later that Isaac returned from London and remarried Leah. This version, when it was published in the late eighteen hundreds, instigated another round of dispute uh of the dispute more than more than a hundred years after the events of the story. But what happened to the couple I, I feel is a bit anticlimactic. It's like those annoying people who ask you um, at the end of a story, what happened in the end, after you already said the punchline of a story and the lesson of a story, and someone asks, oh, well, oh, well what happened in the end, you know? Or, you know, it's like asking what happened to the original Jane Roe of the Supreme Court case. Um, this story goes way beyond the narrative of the individuals involved, and it reverberates through Jewish history for centuries to come, and it goes through a much broader context. Um, What's happening in the Jewish world at that time? This story is happening at the crossroads of history. Just two years before this story took place, in Eastern Europe, the government, the Polish kingdom, puts an end to what's known as the V'ad Ha'arba Ha'aratzis, the Jewish autonomy of the kahal that controls Jewish life and regulates Jewish life throughout the Polish kingdom. They put an end to it. A, the whole entire structure comes to an end. And there's no longer this superstructure of Jewish autonomy that is recognized by the government um, in, in the Polish kingdom, which had been seen throughout the Jews of Europe as the ultimate structure of, uh, of Jewish autonomy and rabbinical control. And, um, which the government had seen as a mechanism of collecting taxes, and now they put it to put an end to it. So that's an important event that happens just two years before. This is the beginning of the end of government recognized Kahal control with its accompanying uh, ramifications. And slowly over the next century, in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe, and even in countries like in the Tsarist Russian Empire where they do not grant emancipation to the Jews of, the, of Russia, there still is an end to the Kahal in 1844, but it starts way earlier. It starts already in the 1700s. Governments begin to stop recognizing the Kahal and Jewish autonomy and taking away the control and power of the Kahal. Uh, so that, that that starts to happen now. That's happening. Of course, we just have to note in general, a few years before this, there's the passing of the Baal in 1760, in Eastern Europe. And there's the beginning of the emergence of the Hasidic movement. So the Hasidic movement is starting to appear on the scene, which is a, a new type of, eventually what would emerge in the 19th century is a new type of Jewish community that's not limited to geographical borders of the Kahal. You have, of course, the recent Shab debacle, the Jacob Frank controversy. That's a big shake-up in the Jewish community. Even more recently you had, which rocked the entire, I mentioned it before, rocked the entire rabbinical establishment and communal establishment across Europe, especially Central Europe, the dispute between Rabbi of Emdin and Rabbanis and Haibashez, which was related to the Shabzai controversy. Um, right around the corner, just a few years after, five, six years after this this, uh, this dispute, is the partitions of Poland when the greatest and largest Jewish community in the world uh, starts to be partitioned between empires. In other words, the geopolitical events that are happening in the background, the collapse of the Polish kingdom where most Jews of Europe lived, and that effect that it has on the Jewish population of Europe. There's, of course, also the soon-to-be collapse of traditional Jewish life in Central Europe, including of the Frankfurt community. Um, you know, following the French Revolution, which is right around the corner, a couple of years later, 1789, the Napoleonic Wars, the loosening of traditional norms, secularization, reform—all that is in its early stages. Moses Mendelssohn, who's you know the beginning of Jewish enla- seen by many as the beginning of the Jewish Enlightenment the beginning of the, of, the, of the story of the Jews in the modern era, he's already active in Berlin at this time. He's alive and well. He's, he's around there in Berlin at the time of this story. In fact, the three people uh, who have a major impact on the story of, of, of the Jewish people in the modern era, um, none of whom's leadership derives from an establishment kahal position, but rather from charismatic leadership, Moses Mendelssohn, the Baal Shemtiv, and the Vilna Ga'in, all of them are around this time. Baal Shemtev had just passed away. Moses Mendelssohn is already in Berlin. And further to the east, the Vilna Ga'in is active in Vilna at this time. So this is a time of change. There's this weakening of the Kahal, weakening of the rabbinical establishment. The French Revolution is around the corner. It's like a last gasp, as it were, of, of the old established Kahal system. Now, you might say that a lot of the things I mentioned were to the east, Eastern Europe, Poland, and we're talking about Western Germany, uh, Ashkenaz. So first of all, the Jewish world at the time, especially the rabbinical world, were closely connected, especially since Poland was the largest and most prestigious Jewish community in the world. And there's something else worth noting, is that the majority of the rabbis involved, including the rabbis in all of the German towns that I mentioned, were from Poland, Eastern Europe, Poland. Rabbi Israel Lifshitz, Rabbi Ram Abish of Lisa, Rabbi Cheska Landau, um, Rabbi Shleim of Helm, Rabbi Ari Ginsburg, the Shagas Aryeh, and most of the others all came from Poland. And uh, even though these are towns are in Western Germany, or Prague in Central Europe, so, um, so they're, but they're all from Poland. And that was the custom at the time, that you imported your rabbi from Poland. Um, that was the... Most, most Western European Jewish towns did that. In the seventeenth uh, and eighteenth, nineteenth, uh, even twentieth centuries, um, there's all these geopolitical changes. There's economic changes. The economies are changing, and this has an effect. is beginning to have an effect on Jewish life. Eventually, leading to urbanization, and eventually in the next century, leading to the industrial revolution. But even in this earlier stage, in the eighteenth century, there's ac- economic changes which affect Jewish life. This is the dawn of modernity and the challenges of modernity that it's going to pose for the Kahal and Rabbinic establishment. The sum total of all this can perhaps add to our understanding of why the story has and continues to have such reverberations as it did throughout the Jewish world at the time and through history itself. There's this beginning of a general unraveling of established Jewish communal norms, increasing instability, sweeping changes, it's at the cusp of modernity, some sort of last hurrah of the old school system and its attempt to, attempts to maintain the slipping its slipping control. So the reperca- repercussions and legacy of such a, given all that context, is that there's um, there's most likely repercussions from the story itself. Um, again, there's it's following the recent. Uh, story of Rabbi Yaakov Emden, Ribyanus, and Ibeshitz and that controversy and dispute. So this is the second rabbinical dispute that ended up very bitter um, with the rabbinical establishment not coming out looking at its finest. So it's very likely that this contributed to the lessening of respect uh, that the office of the rabbinate had had up until that point and its prestige. And over the next century, the forces, the external forces of modernity, especially in Germany and Central Europe, would weaken traditional Judaism, and the rabbinical establishment was completely powerless to stop it or even slow it down. Um, so this may have contributed to that uh, factor. Um, to It may have either, con- well, you know, it's always the question, and I definitely don't have any definitive stance on this, Did it contribute to its diminishing influence? Or at the least, did it serve as an indicator of its diminishing influence? There's a big difference. In yeshivish parlance, we would say, is it a simon or a siba? The irony, of course, of all this is that the Frankfurt rabbinate, uh, in in, in their obstinate position against the overwhelming majority of of the rabbis at the time, and the anger they express at Rabbi Cheskel Landau, the Nidei behuda in in hindsight, it's kind of tragic or ironic that this community uh, basically disappeared a few years later in the in the era of modernity, the reform secularization. Not long afterwards, Reb Pinchas Haravitz of course, was the last great leader of Frankfurt in its old glory, and it would soon completely collapse. Eventually, it would be resurrected by Rabchamshin or Full Hirsch on a smaller scale. But that's a story of the 19th century and a fascinating story as well. Um, so, this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehudi for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. Of course, check out the Legacy Judaica auction next week on May 8th and all the fascinating historical artifacts that they have. I'm going to post the links. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoy it.